Good morning, everybody. Happy last Sunday in November to you. If we could take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 35 and verse 21. Lord willing, seeking to make it through verses 21 through 26 this morning. The title of our message um, deals with a subject that I don't think really gets a lot of attention in the modern Christian world, but it's clearly here in our text this morning. The title of our message is Loss of Rewards. Loss of Rewards. As we've been moving through the book of Genesis, God is raising up a nation, the nation of Israel. Uh, very significant because Israel will export God's blessings to the world, including the Messiah, whose birthday, birth, we're celebrating this month. God, to do this feat, has decided to work sovereignly through three individuals, first Abraham, then Isaac, and then lately we've been reading about his work through Jacob. Jacob has left Padan Aram up north, and he has traveled back into the land of Israel. He was in Shechem for a while. And then the Lord told him to move from there to Bethel. And then when he was in Bethel, he moved further, uh, sort of in route from Bethel to Bethlehem. And that's where last week, as that transition is taking place, we saw the birth of his son, Benjamin, and then the death of his wife, uh, Rachel. And it's at this particular point that one of the strangest things in the Bible happens. It's one of those passages that, well, we just kind of read over it, but we really don't understand what it's about. It's about Reuben losing the birthright. And then that will be followed. That's in verses 21 and 22. And that will be followed by sort of a reiteration of Jacob's dozen Second part of verse 22 into verse 26. But notice what happens here. This is where Reuben, the the firstborn, loses what we would call the, the birthright. And that happens in verses 21 and 22. It sort of starts with a geographical marker. It says in verse 21, Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. Now, one of the things that's interesting here is you'll notice that Jacob is now being called Israel. He is going to be referred sometimes to his former name, Jacob, but his primary name from this point on is Israel. Not a big shock. Um, God changed his name back in Genesis 32, verse 28. He said, your name shall no longer be be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have 
prevailed. And then to reiterate the name change, you might recall verse 10 of the same chapter. Genesis 35, it says, But God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Jacob has a new identity. He has a new assignment from God, and it completely fits that the Lord would change his name. We have made mention of the fact that as you move through the Bible, God changes the names of people constantly. And he names them not according to who they are, but what they will become. You need to look no further than God's dealings with Peter. Matthew 16, Jesus says, you're no longer Simon, but your name now is Petros. Peter, meaning stone, a little stone, but a stone nonetheless, and that communicates stability. And that must have been sort of a laugh to Peter when he heard that, because he was anything but stable. In fact, in that same chapter, um, his mouth is used by God, and then his mouth is used by Satan. What do you mean, I'm a rock, I'm stable? Uh, this is the fellow that denied the Lord not once, not twice, but three times. This is the fellow that would walk out on the water, and then he would see the wind and the storm, and he would take his eyes off Jesus, and he would begin to sink. This is the fellow that ultimately would deny the Lord three times, as I think I said a little earlier, he was anything but stable, and yet that's the name God gave him, stability. And what a fulfillment of prophecy that is, because as you move through Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, there's not a more important player in the life and the ministry of the early church than the apostle Peter. So eventually he lived up to his name. And when God works with us, he does not see us, and I thank the Lord for this, based on what we are, but what we will become in God. And I believe that God is still in the renaming business. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, a great verse to think about as we move into Christmas and then New Year's. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. God is in the newness business. And in fact, at the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and verse 1 It says there, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And it's in that context that our Lord says, behold, I make all things new. As Christians, we need not spend our lives looking in the rearview mirror, concerned about failures of the past. We need to be looking forward because God is a God of newness. He is a, is a God of new beginnings. 
In fact, what's rapidly becoming my most favorite verse of the Bible is the book of Jonah, chapter 3 and verse 1, where it says, The Lord came, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And I love that because what was it like when the word of the Lord came to him the first time? He was disobedient. And yet God, when he, after putting Jonah in time out for a while in the belly of a fish, as that fish vomited him onto dry land, um, the Lord gave Jonah a fresh start, a new start. That's what he did with Peter, with this new name. That's what he does with you. That's what he does with me. That's what he does with all of us. The Apostle Peter denied the Lord three times. But the Lord said to Peter in John 21, Do you love me? Well, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. And he said that to Peter not once, not twice, but three times, communicating full restoration to Peter. Because Peter in his human self had failed, he denied the Lord not once, not twice, but three times. And it's interesting how the Lord deals with these characters. He doesn't, you know, come in front of them with a magnifying glass and showing showing them all of their faults and deficiencies. He focuses them on the future. You know, as you're, as you're driving, and I'm thinking a little bit about driving lately because my daughter is learning to drive and she's doing a great job, by the way. But the have you noticed that the rearview mirror is a lot smaller than your windshield on the front? I mean, why is the rearview mirror so small but the windshield is so big? Because the expectation of a driver is not that they'd be looking behind them, but looking forward. Unfortunately, a lot of us as Christians can spend so much time looking backward that we really can't see where we're going. We spend so much time going back into the past, reliving regrets, reliving bad decisions, when the Lord, particularly this time of the year as we're moving into the new year, is basically saying, get over it. Move on. I'm a God of grace. I'm a a God of forgiveness. I'm I'm a God of... um, restoration. And because God makes us new, he gives us a new name and a new identity, which focuses us not on the past, but the future. What did the Apostle Paul say in Philippians chapter 3, I believe it is? He says specifically, forgetting the things that lay behind. I look forward and I press on to the prize, the upward calling of Christ Jesus. And if there was ever a man that could have dwelt on his past, it would have been the Apostle Paul. Because he, in his pre-Christian life, had done terrible things. In fact, Paul the Apostle, when he was at that time Saul, presided over the first execution of the Christian age, presiding over the martyrdom of a man named Stephen. And God forgave Paul. His name at that time was Saul, like 
what's happening here with Jacob. God gave him a new name to redirect him towards his future. God didn't uh, spend his life with Paul pulling out a magnifying glass saying, yeah, but don't you remember when you did this and don't you remember when you did that? The whole focus of Paul's life is looking forward, looking through that front windshield and not constantly looking through the rearview mirror. And so what you see here is Jacob stepping into that new identity as he has been given here this uh, this new name. And there is a geographical marker that is mentioned here, verse 21 of Genesis 35. Then Israel journeyed on and he pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. This apparently is um, an area outside of Bethlehem. They had not yet arrived in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, of course, is a great thing to think about this time of the year. As we get ready to celebrate the birth and the nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Micah chapter 4 verse 8 indicates that this is an area of some countenance. Various prophetic events and things that God has done in the past occur at this very place, this Tower of Eder. It says in Micah 4, verse 8, As for you, Tower of the Flock, Hill of the Daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the Daughter of Jerusalem. So what happens here is a mistake, Related to Reuben, as I'll show you, God is going to turn around and turn it into a place of geographical victory. And watch the Lord do that with you. Uh, as sometimes we dwell on the past, God says, you know, that very past, I'm going to turn it around for something good. Because God is in the business of taking lemons and turning them into what? Lemonades. There's no need as a Christian to walk through your Christian life consumed with regrets from the past. Of course, we learn from the past. We learn from our mistakes. But biblically speaking, that's not our focus. Our focus is our new identity, the new program that God has us on, and the future. But you'll notice here Reuben's sin. Uh, notice verse 22. It says, now it came while Israel, there's Jacob's new name a second time. It came about that while Israel was dwelling in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel, notice again Jacob's new name, Israel heard of it. What in the world um, is happening here? Well, who is Bilhah? Bilhah, you remember, was one of the handmaidens given to Jacob by Laban. And through Jacob and Bilhah came two individuals that became two of the 12 tribes of Israel, Dan and Naphtali. So in this arrangement... Bilhah belonged to Jacob. And what Reuben is doing here by going in and laying with Bilhah is he is attempting to claim lordship over this family. Jacob, you're not in charge. I'm in charge. 
that's what laying with your father's concubine meant in the time period when the scripture was written. There's a couple of references to this in the Samuel books. 2 Samuel chapter 3 verses 7 and 8, uh, it, Abner, this is being spoken of to Abner and it says, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Over in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 8, it says, I also gave you your master's house and your master's slaves into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. So the concubine coming with it is the authority over those houses. Second Samuel chapter 16, verses 20 through 22. Ithophel said to Absalom, quote, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left, to keep the house. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. In other words, going into your father's concubine sexually speaking, is is a power play. Jacob is not in charge, Reuben says. I'm in charge. He was trying to, in this act, seize the reins of authority. And it's sort of a strange uh, uh, cultural practice in our time period, but this is basically what it meant in biblical times. It's the parallel of somebody trying to grab the reins of power when God has not given that individual the reins of power. Very, very sadly, this kind of thing takes place in the church world constantly. People want to move into some sort of position, probably for their own egotistic egotistic reasons, egotistical reasons. When God has not given that position to such a person. This is something that John dealt with in 3 John verse 9 concerning this man Diotrephes. You'll notice that John mentions the name Diotrephes. I find that very interesting because a lot of people say you should never call out a false teacher by name. And yet John, the love apostle, is calling out this man, Diotrephes. And he says in 3 John verse 9, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. What he's saying there is Diotrephes is on a power trip. He's trying to grab the reins of authority within the church ecclesiastically that do not belong to him. And he's doing it because it feeds his flesh. It feeds his sin nature. And after all, he is someone that loves to be first. These are people that the church world should watch out for. Jesus in Mark chapter 9 verses 34 and 35 indicated that that is not the path to greatness. In God, the road up is always down and the road down is always up. It's the exact opposite of the way the world thinks. People that want limelight, people that want to grab the reins of authority, illegitimately end up in the end being humbled and abased, ask Lucifer about that sometime. Not that you should get in too many conversations with Satan, but he is the prototype of it. 
And then the pathway of Jesus is the exact opposite. His name has been exalted above every name because he humbled himself to the point of the cross. The way up is down and the way down is up. In God, the world won't think this way. The world is filled with people trying to climb to the top of the ladder as fast as they can to assert authority over others. Jesus in Mark chapter 9 verses 34 and 35 put it this way, but they kept silent for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Now that's quite a conversation. (laughs) Here is Jesus with his disciples and what are they talking about? I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Now, I should be the greatest because my YouTube channel has more subscribers than yours. I should be the greatest because my church has more members than yours. That's why a lot of pastors get into the business of fudging the numbers concerning the size of their churches. We would call that in this profession evangelistically speaking. (laughs) Sort of trying to make a name for themselves. The church world, very sadly, is is full of this. If you think this is some strange thing where the disciples are talking on the road, who's the greatest, very, very sadly, leadership can be filled with this sort of mindset. But Jesus corrected the record in Mark 9.35, the next verse. He says, sitting down. In other words, he, he heard the conversation. He stopped. And he wanted to impress a point upon them while they were not distracted walking and with this conversation. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. One of the things that blew the minds of the disciples about Jesus in the upper room, John 13, is when he got down on his hands and knees and began to wash their feet to such an extent that Peter didn't like it. This is not how a Messiah is supposed to act. And yet Mark 10, I believe it's verse 45, is very clear that the Son of Man did not come in the world to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If you see great things for yourself, then turn yourself into a servant. Don't do in God what the world does and try to grab the reins of authority illegitimately because that never ends well. It didn't end very well for Reuben. It didn't end very well for Lucifer who became uh, Satan. But going back to verse 22, it says it came about that while Israel was dwelling in that land, Reuben, the firstborn, went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. In other words, Jacob, whose name is now Israel, knew what was happening, but he didn't say anything about it. But he would say something about it later. And when does he talk about it later? Well, we haven't gotten there yet, but he will talk about it in Genesis 49. Uh, Jot down these verses, verses 3 through 7. Because there it's going to be the end of Jacob's life and he is going to pronounce blessings prophetically 
on Jacob's dozen and their various sons and daughters who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what he says later on concerning Simeon and Levi. Genesis 49, verses 3 and 4. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Now, I made a mistake earlier. He's not talking to Simeon and Levi here. He's talking to Reuben. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up into your father's bed. Then you defiled it, and he went up to my couch. In other words, there's something that's going to be taken away from you, Reuben, because you did this. Now, concerning uh, Simeon and Levi and how, as we've talked about, they overreacted in Genesis 34 to the chagrin of Jacob, and they wiped out all of the Shechemites. In other words, they didn't practice the principle that would be handed down later on at the Mosaic Law, that punishment is to fit the crime. That, by the way, is what it means when it says in Exodus 21 verses 24 and 25, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. I used to read that and say, wow, that's just terrible. That's so mean. But the truth of the matter is, it's a principle that will be given to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. It's it's actually a principle of compassion. And what it basically says is, let the punishment fit the crime. In other words, if somebody takes out your foot, you don't take out their eye. Their foot is now taken. And it's actually enshrined in our Eighth Amendment to the United States Constitution. The first ten amendments to the United States Constitution are not shackles on the citizenry. They're shackles on the government. They're a set of handcuffs on the government. How far the government can go. And one of the things the government cannot do, according to the Eighth Amendment, is get involved in cruel and unusual punishments where the punishment is completely disproportionate to the crime. The kind of thing that you see, very sadly, in Islamic countries, oh, you stole a piece of bread, we're going to cut off your whole hand, we're going to cut off your whole arm. Well, there the punishment is far greater than the crime. The Eighth Amendment in our Constitution is designed to protect us from a state that overreaches. Simeon and Levi didn't practice that. They killed everybody within Shechem. And just as Jacob deals with them or dealt with Reuben in Genesis 49 verses 3 and 4, he does the same thing with Simeon and Levi. They lost a privilege. It says in Genesis 49, 5 and 7, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence, describing what they did in chapter 34. Verses 3 and 4 describing what Reuben did here in chapter 35. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let my glory be united with their assembly because in their anger they slew men and in their self-will they lamed oxen. 
Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And for wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, you really can't understand what's going on here until you see the family tree. Who were Jacob's first sons coming from Jacob through Leah? The firstborn was Reuben. That's number one. The second one born was Simeon. That's number two. The third one was born Levi. That's number three. The fourth born one was Judah, number four. And yet the privilege of bringing forth the Christ child was given not to Reuben, not to Simeon, not to Levi, but to Judah. Now you might ask yourself, why does Judah get that privilege when he is not the firstborn, he's the fourthborn? By the way, this is a wonderful thing to think about this time of the year. Because Old Testament prophecy is very clear that when the Messiah is born, he is not coming through the tribe of Reuben, Simeon, Levi, although you would think he would because they were born before Judah. He is coming through the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49 verse 10. And this is where Jacob, after explaining all of these things concerning what Reuben did, chapter 35, what Simeon and Levi did, chapter 34, he then bestows upon a particular son and a particular tribe the rights of the one who would bring forth the Messiah. In Genesis 49, verse 10, Jacob will say this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Not Reuben, Simeon, or Levi, but Judah. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, a reference to the Messiah, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. It's it's a remarkable prophecy because here are all the different tribes within the nation of Israel. And Jacob is very clear that when the Messiah comes, he's coming from a specific tribe, the tribe of Judah. John in the book of Revelation, chapter 5 and verse 5, says this is why Jesus is qualified to open the seven-sealed scroll, which will vacate ultimately, Satan from the earth. That's what John sees in Revelation 5. He sees this seven-sealed scroll, and John actually starts crying. And then he's asked, well, why are you crying? And he says, well, that's the title deed to the earth, and no one is qualified to open it. And if nobody opens it, then Satan continues on and on and on as the ruler of this world. I mean, that would make anybody cry, wouldn't it? That's what John is doing. But then he's made aware that there's someone who is qualified, and that's Jesus. And why is Jesus qualified? Because he was born from the right tribe. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5 says, One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. (laughs) I like that. Quit focusing on the past. Look at your future. Stop weeping. Behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, 
the root of David has come so as to open the book and and its seven seals. Notice that Jesus is qualified because he's from the right tribe, Judah. He is from the right lineage, the lineage of David. And so there is someone qualified to open that scroll. Which means once that scroll is open, Satan is going to be evicted from planet Earth. But this is the significance of the tribe of Judah. The honor of bringing forth the Messiah was not given to the firstborn. It wasn't given to the secondborn. It wasn't given to the thirdborn. It was given to the fourthborn, though. And that's not the way things work. The rights or the privileges always go to the firstborn. Well, why isn't Reuben qualified to bring forth the Messiah? Because he messed up. He tried to grab power that wasn't his. Why, why aren't Simeon and Levi qualified? They should be in position two and position three because they messed up. They didn't respect the what we call the Lex Talionis principle where the punishment is to fit the crime. They overreacted in terms of vengeance to the chagrin of Jacob. We studied that in Genesis 34. So if Reuben messed up, he can't bring forth the Messiah. If Simeon and Levi messed up, they can't bring forth the Messiah. So let's give the honor to number four when it should have been given to number one. You see what these men did here? They did not forfeit their tribal status because these tribes will exist in the millennial kingdom. Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 28 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit on his glorious throne, shall sit upon 12 tribes governing the 12 tribes of Israel. How many tribes are there going to be in the millennial kingdom? 12, not 9, or 8, or 7, or 11. They're all still there. Well, if they're all still there, what does it matter? Here's the deal. They gave up a privilege they could have had. They they could have been in the millennial kingdom and also received the right, at least Reuben could have, of bringing forth the Messiah. But he forfeited that. He didn't forfeit his eternity. He didn't forfeit his destiny. But he forfeited a privilege he could have had. Well, then it should have gone to Simeon. And if not Simeon, then Levi. Why didn't they receive the right of bringing forth the Messiah? They should have received that right because they were number two and number three in line. Because they messed up. In Genesis 34. They didn't lose their tribal status. They're still in the millennium, but a privilege that should have been theirs was taken away. Do you see what's developing here? The doctrine of rewards. Here is a picture, Ezekiel 47, of the land allotments in the millennial kingdom amongst the 12 tribes. You'll see territory for Reuben. You'll see territory for Simeon. And right in the middle there is a large territory for Levi. Ezekiel 47 spells all of this out. So it's not like they lost their salvation. It's not like they went to hell. But the privilege that they could have had 
of bringing forth the Messiah did not go their direction because they made an excursion back into the flesh. Ezekiel 34, Levi and Simeon catered to rage. That's what Jacob is calling them out for in Genesis 49. Reuben catered to the desire to be first and to take authority which wasn't his. And so they forfeited something. Now, if you can understand this in the Old Testament sense, you can understand God's dealings with us because it's exactly the same. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, absolutely nothing can cancel your salvation. I know there are churches that teach you can lose your salvation, but the Bible teaches no such doctrine. Jesus in John 10 verses 27 through 29 says, my sheep Hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I will give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. Lousy translation. Because never perish is a translation of a double negative in Greek. A double negative in Greek is the strongest negation you can possibly have. It's like my daughter, when she was five years old, says, can I borrow the keys to the car? And I would say, no! Strongest negation possible. Now that she's of driving age is a different answer. That's what the double negation in Greek means. It means no, 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 no. Absolutely not. Exclamation points following. Spanish translation says, no way, Jose. And then... And very few translations pick this up. You'll also see right next to that dual negation is the word ionios, which means forever. The strongest negation in Greek followed by forever. That's why I'm not crazy about that translation, never perish. It should say never, 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 never perish forever. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Yeah, but pastor, certainly we can take ourselves out of the Lord's hand. Well, no one means no one. You can't even take yourself out of the Lord's hand. Because you're being kept in what I would call the double grip of grace. Your salvation was never dependent on works to begin with. The reason you're in the fold is because of the grace unmerited favor of God. So why would you think a human work of disobedience could undo that? Now, if I got in the front door through my human works, then I guess my human works got to keep me in. But not if I got in the front door through grace. See, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, they got in through grace. They're still in the millennial kingdom. No one will snatch them out of my hand. John 10, 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So you're not only being protected by the Son's hand, you're being protected by the Father's hand. Double grip of grace. Two members of the Trinity are holding you into security of salvation. 
This is why Paul acts as if we're already glorified. He says in Romans 8, 29 and 30, for, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Isn't it not interesting that glorification, the future tense of our salvation, is put in the past tense with the other aspects of our salvation? In other words, God looks at you as if your arrival in glory is so certain that he acts as if your glorification already happened. So right now as I speak, you guys are glorified. And I'm looking out at you, you don't look very glorified. And I don't know if I look very glorified. But from the perspective of God, you're already in glory. You're, you're fast-tracked. It's a done deal. First Peter 1, 4 and 5 says, To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. How do I know I'm going to get my inheritance, Peter? After all, Peter, you know something about this. You denied the Lord three times. You messed up big time. The guy who messed everything up wrote these words under the inspiration of the Spirit in verse 5. We're going to get the inheritance because verse 5 says, who are protected by the power of God. Through faith for a salvation already to be revealed in the last times. God is protecting you. We're protected by his power. Your, your, Your arrival in heaven has already been accomplished. This is how you can face death with absolute certainty of where your soul is going to go. You can look death right in the eye with confidence because you're protected by the grace of God. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that I, upon death, will immediately go into the presence of the Lord because I... Believe what God's word says. I got into this through grace. Now, if I got into this through works, then it's kind of on my shoulders. That's why so many so-called Christians struggle with this issue of security because they think that somehow the whole thing rides on them, which it does not. So, praise the Lord for the doctrine of eternal security. Once saved, always saved. I guess I can go live like the devil then, right? Think again on that. Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 says, For we, Paul including himself in that category, we must, doesn't look optional to me. I can't opt out with a note from my doctor. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one would be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Judgment day is coming. And it's not, left side of the screen, the sheep and goat judgment. That's for tribulation survivors. It's not... Moving from the left to the sort of middle column, it's not Ezekiel 20. 
judgment of the Jews in the wilderness following the tribulation. It's not the far right-hand side of the screen, great white throne judgment. That's for unbelievers only. That's in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. But there is a judgment in our future called the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ, which I have highlighted in yellow. That is coming. Yeah, but if I'm saved already, what do I need to be judged for? You don't need to be judged. Your judgment was already absorbed by Jesus on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. What is going to be judged is your works. They are going to pass through a fire. And the fire is there to test their quality. Paul the Apostle describes it this way. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. According to the grace of God, which is given to me like a wise builder, I laid a foundation upon uh, and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds. Be careful, Simeon. Be careful, Levi. Be careful, Reuben. Why should I be careful? My position in the millennial kingdom is guaranteed. Be careful because you might, by taking an excursion back to the sin nature, forfeit a privilege above and beyond salvation that God wants to give you. For no man can lay a foundation other than that which is laid in Christ Jesus. Now if a man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, all non-combustible by the way, they won't burn, the fire will just purify them, or wood, hay, and straw, all combustible all destroyed in the fire each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality not of the person but of each man's work if any man's work which he has built on it remains he will receive a reward what does that mean some additional benefit above and beyond salvation. If a man's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet is through fire. What a tragedy that is to get to heaven and have your works pass through this judgment and you sort of suffer a loss, which is totally avoidable. So this particular judgment that we're talking about is not to judge sin. Jesus said our sin debt is paid in full. John 19, verse 30. It is finished. It's not to determine salvation because God gives you the immediate assurance of salvation the moment you place your faith in the work of the Messiah, John 5, 24. But it is to either give or not give rewards based on how I lived as a believer. If I do things unto the Lord with a right motive under his power, at the Bema Seat Judgment, it will pass through the fire and survive it because it's gold, silver, and costly stones, and it's a reward that I have above and beyond salvation. If I'm going back to the flesh, going back to anger, 
as Simeon and Levi went into, or if I go back into power grabbing, as Reuben apparently went into, then that passes through the fire. It's revealed for the wood, wood, hay, and stubble that it is. It's incinerated, and it represents the loss of a reward I could have had had I just walked with the Lord. At this particular Bema Seat judgment, there will be five crowns, either given or not given. The first is the incorruptible crown that is given for the believer who gains mastery over the flesh. Not the believer who is sinless, but who is sinning less under God's power. Paul himself talked openly about this first of five rewards. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then they do it to receive a perishable wreath, referring to what are called the Isthmian games, which took place right where Paul was writing these words on a Isthmian land bridge connecting Greece and Corinth. That's why he's using these athletic-type metaphors. The culture of Greece was known for this. Therefore, run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I discipline my body and making it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I will not be disqualified from the prize. Very misinterpreted verse as Paul is afraid he's going to lose his salvation. If Paul is afraid that he's going to lose his salvation in this verse and you interpret the prize as salvation, then Paul just contradicted all of his doctrine he taught elsewhere. Because he taught over and over again, we're saved by grace. So he's not here talking about salvation. What he is concerned about is the forfeiture of a reward that the Lord wants to give him above and beyond salvation. Something that Reuben, Simeon, and Levi in the Old Testament sense all lost out on, even though they're there in the millennial kingdom. They're looking back with a regret. See that? Then there's going to be the crown of rejoicing. I have the scriptures there in the left column given to the soul-winning Christian. Then there's the crown of life, two references to it in the New Testament to the Christian that endures trials. Anybody in that category? The crown of glory given to the Christian who faithfully shepherds God's people. And then I think my favorite one on the whole thing. The crown of righteousness. For the believer that longs for his appearing. Given to the Christian who has not become so comfortable in the devil's world that he or she looks at the second advent as a nuisance. 
I don't want Jesus to come back today because I'm pretty comfortable here. That, by the way, is why God allows Christians to suffer, I believe, is a reminder that this world is not our home. It's kind of like you'll talk to a young woman, you know, and she says, I don't want the Lord to come back today. I say, why not? Well, I want to get married and have kids. And then she gets married and six months into marriage, she says, what was that teaching again on the Lord's return? (laughs) Because marriage isn't all cracked up what I thought it was going to be. Folks, this world um, is not our home. We're just passing through. And the Christian who keeps that perspective, Bama seat judgment, fully rewarded. My favorite illustration in this whole thing is given by Samuel Hoyt, writing in Bibliotheca Sacra, Dallas Seminary's academic journal. He says this, The judgment seat of Christ might be compared to a commencement ceremony. At graduation, there is some measure of disappointment and remorse that one did not do better and work harder. However, at such an event, the overwhelming emotion is joy, not remorse. The graduates do not leave the auditorium weeping because they did not earn better grades. Rather, they are thankful that they have been graduated and they are grateful for what they did achieve. Look at this next line here that I have underlined. To overdo the sorrow aspect of the judgment seat of Christ is to turn heaven into hell. To underdo. The sorrow aspect is to make faithfulness inconsequential. I'm not here to preach hell, fire, and damnation over you. That somehow you're at risk of losing your salvation if you've had a recent excursion back into the sin nature. What I am here to tell you is is those kinds of decisions matter. Second John and verse 8 says, Watch yourself. And I have these verses there at the top, very tip-top of the screen. Watch yourself that you do not lose what we have accomplished, that you may receive a full reward. Revelation chapter 3 verse 11 says, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. This is the doctrine of rewards. By the way, you get rewarded from the Lord at the beam of seat judgment of Christ. What do you do with those crowns? It's not a scenario where you strut around proud as a peacock. If I'm writing, if I'm reading my Bible correctly, these are things that we take and cast at his feet Not once, but every time he's worshipped, which I would think would be a lot. Every time he's worshipped, there's a crown in your hand and you cast it at his, his feet. It's still your crown. Apparently it comes back to you somehow. And he's worshipped again. You cast it at his feet. You do this over and over again. Sort of embarrassing if everybody is casting a crown before the Lord's feet, and everybody looks at your hands and they're empty. 
because you went the route of, of Reuben, Simeon, Levi. We forfeited a privilege that we could have had above and beyond salvation. Revelation 4, 9 and 10 says, When the four living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne. And they will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, and it goes on describing the worship coming to our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, writing to Timothy, said over and over again, watch your life and watch your doctrine carefully because God seeks to bless us with things that far transcend mere arrival into heaven, as wonderful as a gift that is. He wants to give us privileges. Sometimes privileges we don't even know anything about. And yet, receiving those privileges requires following Him as Lord. We do not teach here lordship salvation. Following Christ as Lord is somehow a formula for justification. It is not. Faith alone in Christ alone is what justifies. Well, then why follow him as Lord under his power? Because of these realities that we're speaking of today. The potential forfeiture of rewards which is in our passage. We'll pick it up next time, right in the middle of verse 22, with Jacob's dozen and Isaac's death. If you're here today and you've never been justified before God, our exhortation is that you receive as a free offering, a free gift, what Jesus did for us 2,000 years on the cross. His final words were, It is finished. And he offers humanity a massive gift that you can only access by way of faith. That's what gets you in the door by grace. All these other concepts we're addressing don't deal with that initial transaction. They deal with the walk of discipleship, which you can see is very, very significant. But that's not a heaven or hell issue. You might be here today having never trusted in Christ. Our exhortation is that as you come under the convicting ministry of the Spirit, that you would respond to that conviction and place your faith in Christ and Christ alone. If it's something you need more information on, I'm available after, afterwards to talk, shall we pray? Lord, we just thank you for today. We thank you for your